0: Surely the Lord is coming soon. Amen. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.
1: A reading from the book of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort to my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, heralds of good news
2: a reading from Second Peter. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God.
3: This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark.
2: Glory to you, Lord
3: Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord.
0: Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, <clears throat> for coming to worship you and receive from you, and thank you for the great gift of your word uh, that you speak to us. So open our, our hearts and minds to uh, hear from you today. Amen. You can be seated. I'll admit, this week I was struggling a lot with my introduction for this sermon. Honestly, I was trying really hard to not talk about the Lord of the Rings, um, but I have failed and I will be talking about the Lord of the Rings right now. Uh, if, you're, if you're wanting to track in your brain where I'm thinking, I'm especially getting pictures from the movies this morning, so if you're a book purist, sorry, but these are ex- pretty helpful for this. If you know those things, think about the battle at Helm's Deep from the Two Towers. If you're unfamiliar with the story, uh, the humans of the land of Rohan are being attacked by this huge force of evil orcs and urukai, which are just... Super orcs, really. Um, And the whole land is at risk. So the people flee to their great fortress called Helm's Deep. Uh, It's built up against this cliff. Uh, There's a series of caves and caverns within so that those who can't fight go and try to hide. And anyone else who can possibly do anything is geared up and ready for fighting. They fill the walls with archers. They barricade the gates in. Um, But that huge force comes on and they're determined to kill everyone there. And the defenders, even at the beginning, can barely hold their own. The orcs have ways to get up and over the walls. They are destroying the gates. Uh, And then even if it seems like they're doing okay, they actually the orcs manage to blow a huge hole in one of the big outer walls um, And flood in so the humans have to retreat and have to keep retreating into the keep and deeper on and as the fight continues the people of Rohan They just Continuously lose ground and it seems finally like all hope is lost. They are just moments from their defenses failing and then at dawn, it's on this steep rise that overlooks the valley where Helm's Deep um, is being besieged. Gandalf, the white wizard, appears there, but not him alone. He comes with all of the mounted cavalry of Rohan. And they sweep down the hill with the sun rising at their backs, blinding their enemies. Um, and they just lay waste to that whole army and really save the day there. It's a pretty great uh, moment in the the whole movie, that whole thing, the action and the the despair and then the joy at the end. If you've seen it, I know you felt that anxiety about how in the world can they withstand this? What are they gonna do here? You know, this is especially, this is the good guys. They have to win, but it feels hopeless. There's no way they can defeat this force. And then Gandalf appears, there is hope and certain victory. Uh, This last year, I got to watch it for the first time with my two sons. Uh, And I remember we even read the books beforehand, but still watching Gandalf and the riders of Rohan ride into battle. They were like their mouths dropped open, smiling. I think Alice was shouting a bit. It's just so incredible moment. Our passage today in Isaiah uh, is what brought all of this to mind for me, because this passage is all about um, the hope and comfort that comes even during and after the defeat and destruction. The passage is a reminder to us that no matter how awful things may be now, someone greater is coming. The King is coming, and He will set all things right. So you see our Isaiah reading, it actually starts right off with the comfort and encouragement. So we actually need to start a bit before this to really understand what's happening in this passage. Isaiah 40 stands as a very key place in the book. It's the turning point of the whole book in many ways. Uh, Before this point in Isaiah, uh, the prophecies, the words of God for his people, they have been primarily, predominantly words of warning calls to repentance, and then a looking forward to the judgment that would come upon the people if they continued to pursue their sins and kept mocking God in their false worship and idolatry. And actually, even the chapters right before 40, um, they really stand out in a unique way. The whole book is um, poetry, except for those few chapters before 40 where they flip to prose. And those chapters tell of how the people of Jerusalem and Judah were actually miraculously saved by the hand of God from this huge horde of attacking Assyrians. Uh, And everything feels great and good. And then the end of those few prose chapters actually ends with the promise, but Babylon is coming. God actually tells the king of Judah, King Hezekiah, um, that all of the riches, the prizes, the beauty and wealth of this whole kingdom will be carried away to Babylon. There will be nothing left. And the people will be taken too, even some of King Hezekiah's own descendants. It's a really stark warning, and it comes as such a surprise at that point. God had just saved them from Assyria. Hezekiah is following God. He loves God and wants to listen to him. But the promise at that moment is, but the people aren't going to follow. They won't stay with me, and judgment will come. And we know Babylon did come. They destroyed the armies of Judah. They ransacked her fortified cities, and they conquered Jerusalem, tearing down her walls, destroying the temple. They took away everything of value. They killed wantonly, and those who didn't kill, um, they took away to Babylon. All but the poorest of the poor were taken away from the land. So, chapter Isaiah 40 today. This is actually meant to speak to the people after all of this. It speaks to those who survived the sieges, the starvation, the death of so many friends and loved one, loved ones. It speaks to those who've been taken from their home and then their land and culture and left with nothing. It's a message for those who are looking at all of this and they're saying, "Well, what what hope is there? What's even left? Should we even keep on trying in any way here?" And even more, the people are asking. What about God? Does he love us? Has he abandoned us? Israel was formed by the work and promises of God. And now the people are in a foreign land surrounded by idols. And they're wondering, well, what about our God? Has he failed us? So as we come to Isaiah 40 here, um, we haven't experienced exile, of course. But all of us have known all sorts of pain and loss in our lives. We've been hurt. We've lost things that we love or we've lost our ability to pursue those things we love. And we've certainly lost people that we love. Many of us have asked questions like those who have been exiled into Babylon, like they would have asked. We ask, what is going on? What are you doing, God? Can I even trust or hope in you at all anymore? So this passage was meant as an answer for the people in exile. And it's an answer for us as well. And right away, we see, as the passage begins, it comes in the midst of suffering and pain, and God speaks. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Notice here, I love this. God says to those who are wondering where he is, who are in all this pain, and he says, you are my people. I am your God. Even these simple words are saying, I have not abandoned you. I'm not gone. I haven't moved on from you. You're my people. I am your God. I am here. And then there's reason for this comfort. It's not just empty words here. First, the Lord promises their warfare is over. And that word for warfare, that can also mean hardship. So it's just all that war, all that hardship. Those things are past, God says. And then he continues to the bigger news. Their iniquity is pardoned. That means that the people's sins have been dealt with. God has forgiven them. The next and kind of final line of verse two, it's a little bit of a hard one here. It says, uh, they're saying, proclaim this. Proclaim that she has received From the Lord's hand double for all Her sins now I'm not a Hebrew scholar But I've got to interact and read with those Who are and I guess the Hebrew in This verse is just a little weird it feels like it's missing a couple Words that would make it easier Um, so There's a little bit of uncertainty going around what That means Uh, there's kind of one Or two options the first option that It could mean and I'm not on this side uh, But it's that the people of Judah Have been punished doubly for their Sins in some sense it could mean that They've been paid back double the price of their sins. Um, I don't think that sounds very comforting. I also don't know that that makes much sense in a lot of ways. How do you pay back double your sins and various things? Um, but you can leave that one aside if you want to follow along with me on this one. Uh, the other viewpoint I actually encountered mostly by accident this week. I was listening to a sermon by uh, Pastor Tim Keller. He's a pretty good scholar of Hebrew and ancient languages in a lot of ways, um, and he thinks about this, and he wants to make sure we realize this line it 's about the pardon that God is giving it 's building on that idea it 's explaining this pardon. It is saying this isn't a small bit of forgiveness. This is a double portion, a double pardon. The people have received from the Lord a double pardon for their sins, and that means it 's not like just just forgiveness, it 's double the forgiveness. This is really just the Lord saying, "My forgiveness is so big." It's not like God is just barely forgiving. He's not saying, well, you know, you're okay now, but you're on thin ice, so watch out. God's forgiveness and um, pardon is just overabundant. It's so much more than we might expect, more than seems necessary. It's a forgiveness that says you are fully and truly forgiven. You don't have anything to worry about anymore. Those sins aren't clinging to you or following you anymore. And that is comforting. The people in exile... They know at this point that it was their sins that brought them to this point. It was their refusal to love God, their determination to worship idols, practice injustice, to pursue corruption, sin, and death. And now all of those sins have come back upon their head, and they've known great pain, suffering, and loss. They need hope, and God speaks to them. Be comforted. You are my people. I am your God. Know all of your hardship is over. I have forgiven you. You are abundantly pardoned. You don't need to worry. Those sins aren't hanging over you anymore. Please do know that this is true for all of God's people then and now. God's forgiveness isn't partial. It isn't small. It's not holding us over thin ice waiting for us to fall. God forgives and removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. They're gone in his eyes. He won't hold them against us. He isn't waiting for that next slip-up to just throw us aside. He doubly pardons us. In him, we find true, complete forgiveness. And as amazing as that is, in our passage today, it's really meant as just the warm-up. God promises his people real, true forgiveness, and we see that forgiveness comes with purpose. They are forgiven, and then they are being made ready because the king is coming, This is actually the core of this passage. It's the center of the comfort being given. All hope may seem lost, but it's not truly gone. The king, our God, is coming. So Isaiah proclaims, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. When this was originally uh, proclaimed and written, and probably for some time after, uh, when there was a king who was planning to visit, you know, like the distant parts of his realms, he would send out letters and proclamations ahead of time um, saying that he was coming. And they very often would include um, commands to build up the paths that the king would take. You know, make those roads broad and straight. Make them direct. The king is coming. The roads he takes should be the best roads. They should be the safest. Um... But those very literal commands and expectations, they actually come as part of a much bigger, broader understanding. They're a little symbolic here because it's really about making way for the king in all their lives. It's about submitting to him, honoring him, showing that they will listen to the king and accept his rule. One literal way that they demonstrate all that is by fixing the roads, but there's meant to be much more than just some road cleanup going on here. And as the people heard this proclamation here, that, you know, they may have thought, well, when we know the king comes, we'll get our roads in order. But they definitely should have been thinking about making room for the king in their own lives. Even in the wilderness of troubles, they know they can prepare the way for him. Now, certainly, the forgiveness that God gives was the first step in this. But with that forgiveness, the people could now respond and clear a path for God. And certainly, we can too. The season of Advents actually set aside as a time for us to consider what stands between us and God, what fights for the loyalty and love that only God should have, or what needs to be changed to make space in my life for, the, for, for my king because he's coming. And I hope we can all take some time this Christmas to consider how we are called to prepare the way for God to come. But I really want us to notice in this passage that the coming of God doesn't depend on us properly having everything in order or how well we can level mountains or lift up the valleys. The proclamation here is a certainty. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be lowered. The uneven ground shall be made level. This is the certain work of God. We're called to participate in this work But he will make sure the way is prepared. His coming will not be stopped by a bad patch of road or any struggles in our own hearts. So the king will come. He'll make sure the way is ready. And when he comes, his glory will be revealed. And amazingly, it will be revealed to all flesh. Everyone will see it. So this promise suddenly includes not just the Jewish people in exile, but the whole world now. Everyone will see the glory of the Lord revealed. I know that's hard to imagine. Maybe we start to just try to think of uh, indescribable beauty of God. But of course, it's indescribable. What does that mean or look like? Uh, maybe we think about a holy light brighter than the sun. But even that, what is that? How do we understand that in some way? Well, I love in this passage, though, uh, that God through Isaiah is actually going to give us a further image to understand the glory of God that we're seeing. What is his glory like? Uh, And that comes further along um, in verses 10 and 11. And in these verses, we see the coming of God described again, this time with more detail. The Lord Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. The language here is just about God being a strong, victorious warrior. He comes with might. He, He is this strong warrior. And it says his arm rules for him. That sounds a little odd to us. We're not sure what an arm ruling means. Um, but at their time, it was just a way of symbolizing arms symbolized your power, your strength, your might. So saying that his arm rules for him is just saying that the king is going to rule according to his great power. By his strength, he wins the victory and sets up his reign. So God in his glory is this mighty warrior who wins the victory and establishes his rule then we're told about his reward and his recompense being there with him. What are those things? Normally, the idea here would be that these are the spoils of war. Maybe this is what the war was fought over, but this is definitely what was won in the victory. As God comes victorious, now reigning, the prize of this war goes before and with him. What God won in battle is there. So what what did he win? What is this prize? It's what we see in verse 11. It's his flock, his sheep, the king, the Lord comes mighty in victory. His reign and rule established and with him is his great prize. And it's his people. It is us. And then notice how the king acts for his flock. He tends them like a shepherd. How does a shepherd tend his sheep? Well, of course, he cares for them. He looks after them. He protects them. He provides for them, making sure they have what they need. And even more than that, we see that this mighty king um, stoops down to gather up his lambs in his arms, and he carries them there against his chest, against his heart, and then leads them gently on. When my son uh, Ellis was about two and a half, uh, he was playing in the backyard with our babysitter, I was home from work a little early that day, but just trying to get a couple more things done uh, when she called me to come check on him. Ellis had been running after a ball, and he came over it too quick, so he hit it, flipped around, and landed pretty hard. And he was just kind of seeming strange now. He was just sitting there. He was holding his arm. So I went out back, and I saw him there. He was sitting, his arm very still. He wasn't smiling. He seemed worried. But as he saw me, and I went to him and could hold him, he started crying then, you know, he knew something was wrong with his arm. It was hurting. But even though he really loved his babysitter, he didn't yet feel like this is, this is, I can cry now. I can let this all out. Then he got to see me. He knew I was there. And then he knows it's okay. I can be hurt and be worried and need help. He can pour all of that out because I was there. He knew I would help him and protect him and make things better. It was a broken arm. Um, we brought him to the emergency room, got that all patched up. So our mighty king, when he comes for us, He holds us right up against his heart, and there we are truly safe. We can cry there while he comforts us. We can laugh with joy, or finally we just rest. All those questions we have, the pain we know, we deal with them all directly with our King and God as we're held. And this is the glory of God, that he comes in victory and he claims his people in order to hold them close and nurture them and love them. Uh, you may have noticed we skipped over verses uh, 6 to 8 in this passage so far. These land right in the middle of the promise that our God is coming. And so they end up feeling a little bit like a subject change or a rabbit trail. Well, that's, that's not what they're meant to be here. Um, very simply, they say that all flesh, all humans, work just like the grass. Um, we, we fail. We're, we're, we're short-lived. We don't last very long. But the idea of building on that is really that ultimately we can't be relied on. We can't make truly long-term plans or changes. We're just too temporary. We're gone too soon. But that's not so with God. He is forever. His word stands forever. And in this passage, the point of all that is, if these promises we have here, if this comfort was only being promised by some ordinary person, we just couldn't rely on it. It would be meaningless. So that's not what's happening. These aren't just empty phrases. This is the promise of God. So it will certainly happen. As we hear these amazing promises that the king will come, we can know this is the word of God and it will take place. And then we actually see in our gospel reading today, the reminder that in fact, this has happened. The promise was fulfilled John the Baptist came, and in Mark, he's proclaimed as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That means if he was the one preparing the way for the king, the king came after him. And of course, he did come, just not in the way people first expected. He came first, not as a triumphant king, blazing a new path through the desert wilderness, but as one of us, born as this little baby into a poor family, laid in a manger, As an adult, Jesus did come after John the Baptist. John even could point him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but Jesus wasn't recognized as the king, not yet. But he did reveal the glory of God to the world, although it wasn't, again, as people expected, because his glory was most made known to us when he was lifted up from the earth and died upon the cross. He didn't look like a king then, victorious in battle, but he was Only he was defeating the real enemies of sin and death. He was opening the way for forgiveness and life. And though he died, he rose and he lives. And he's actually right now, right now, Jesus is the king and shepherd of his people. Maybe it doesn't quite look like what we might expect at first from Isaiah 40, but Jesus does care for his flock. He does provide for us, and certainly he gathers us into his arms. The risen King holds us close so we can weep with him or laugh with him or rest with him. And because Jesus has come once like this, because he is the King who's promised, we actually know Jesus will come again. And this time it'll look a little more like we expected it to look like in Isaiah 40. The whole world will see his glory radiant and awe-inspiring and they will recognize the King of Kings And we will know what it's like then for our victorious and mighty Lord to bend down and scoop us up in his arms. The care and the healing that we'll know then means we'll never be broken or hurt again. He holds us already, but we can look forward with great hope and longing to that time when he holds us and our eyes can see it and our bodies feel it. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, thank you that you are the great king who's come for us, that you've defeated the enemy, um, that you hold us close. Give us eyes to see, help us to recognize you, uh, and fill our hearts with hope and faith for when you come again. Amen.